0: Uh, my name is Bob. We are in a series called, as the video said, uh, Questions Jesus Asks. So if you've got a Bible or if you've got a phone that has a Bible on it, Mark 8, verse 31. We're going to look at 31 through 38. And quite honestly, if you've got a Bible, get there. If you've got one on your phone, don't text or whatever, or if you need to, whatever. But as long as you get the Bible there so that you can look at it and say, is what Bob's saying legit? Because I don't stand up here on my own authority. We're looking at this today, right? That's the whole idea of this thing. So uh, if you've got a Bible, Mark 8. And with that, we're going to read through the whole thing. And I'll invite good friend, Kinsey, to read 31 through 38.
1: And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels.
0: Thank you very much. Not an easy one from Jesus this week, right? I mean, there's some heavy stuff in there for sure. But that question, for what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? That's the question we're going to uh, focus on today. So the whole premise of this series is that Jesus asks a lot of questions. So, and the whole premise isn't that he's just wondering the answer to them, and so he poses them to those who are around him, especially to the 12 knuckleheads called his disciples. It's not like he's like, I've just been thinking, guys, what do you think? And then he's like, yeah, that's a pretty good answer. Let's go with that one for eternity. Uh, the the idea behind this whole series is when Jesus poses a question, what he's doing is he is offering it to his disciples. He's offering it to us as a question that we should be considering. It's a question that if we really dig into it and find the real answer to it, there's life there in the answer to that question. Um, so sometimes you just have to ra- ask the right questions uh, in order to come to the, um, the right place. And so that's the whole idea of this series. Um, so let's set up the scene. So if you if you remember from, from what was just read, you've basically got four different characters, you could say. You've got Jesus, he's there. You've got Peter, he's talked about. Uh, you've got the rest of the disciples. They're not named. The other 11 are there. And then it mentions in verse 34 that there's also a crowd uh, kind of in the midst of them as well. So here they are uh, all together. And if you look up, if you've got it open in your Bible and you just look, to the story before this, um, that's where Peter and the disciples have come to the realization, or have at least confessed for the first time when Jesus asks them, they, they confess that Jesus is the Christ. So he asks them, Who do you say I am? And that's the first time where they say, You're the you're the Christ. And that word had a ton of meaning to them uh, back then. They had been waiting for the Christ for hundreds of years, the Messiah to come. So when they pointed at Jesus and said, You're it' you're the one. You're the one we've been waiting for. That was a revolutionary idea uh, to them. They, some of them had probably already realized it, but hadn't put words to it. And so this was like a big time in the story where they say, you're the Christ. And that carried with it a whole bunch of baggage in their understanding. They, they thought of the Christ as an entire culture, like the Jewish people uh, with very specific terms. The Christ was going to come and was going to rescue God's people from the, from tyranny and from them being uh, occupied by, they had been occupied by several different countries, but at that time it was Rome. So when they pictured the Christ coming, this Messiah, the Rescuer, they were picturing like a political movement and a military person essentially coming and being the new king over Israel. He was going to raise up the armies. They were going to kick butts, take names, and they're going to kick the Romans out of there. And they were going to become the powerhouse. And everyone was going to be able to come to Jerusalem, to the temple. And they were going to be that big, bright, shining light on a hill. That was, that was their paradigm. They thought that's what the Christ meant. So in the story before this, uh, they say, yep, you're the Christ. And so to them, that's what it meant. Okay, we're on the cusp Jesus is here. He's that person. That means the king is here. Now all we got to do is get the movement going. We got to build the army. We got to get this whole. We got to get king or Jesus on that throne. And so they just picture themselves on the cusp, literally, of this huge revolution. And Peter and the disciples are probably thinking to themselves, "And we're like his best friends. This is awesome. It'd be like being like employee numbers one through ten at Facebook, right? When you f- realize." Oh, this thing's going to go really good for us, and we're going to get some cash out of this thing. In a similar way, they're looking at it going, we're like his right-hand and left-hand people. We're going to be right, front, and center for this whole revolution to take place. So there's this whole meaning behind it, uh, and as we jump in, um, basically what happens, and this is what I found as you follow Jesus, is as soon as you... Do what they did. As soon as you come to the realization of a big truth about Jesus, for them it was, you are the Christ, the one we've been waiting for. As soon as you find a truth in Jesus and you plant that stake in the ground and you realize this is really true, what tends to happen and what you're going to witness happening is Jesus says, yes, good, you've figured it. You know, We've walked to this place and you figured it out. But what he tends to do then is he tends to pull the pin on a little grenade, simulation grenade if you know what that is, and then he drops it in that new, happy little place that you formed, and then he steps back and says, but also that too. And he kind of, he, he doesn't blow the whole thing up, but he makes, it, uh, he makes it so that you see that that's not the whole truth. And this happens almost every time. So as soon as you come to the realization that uh, Jesus is really who he said he was and he loves me. Oh my goodness, Jesus, God himself, he loves me. What tends to happen in the next three weeks in your life is something is going to hit you hard, and it's going to make you wonder, well, how does that fit with the love of God? If if you finally come to the realization that Jesus and God, they provide for me, I can trust them, they provide for me, in the next three weeks in your life, you're probably gonna run into something that's difficult for what in your life is provision, and he's going to say, yes, it's true, I provide but it's not a huge bed of roses that you get to walk on with me. It's not the whole truth that I provide everything you need. It's not the whole, the, the whole picture that I love you and that makes everything just roses in your life. There's a much deeper thing happening here. There are forces at work here. All, there's this more to truth, right? So that happens, I have found as a disciple, and that's what happens in this story with them because it says, right after they have named him Christ, verse 31, so he began to teach them. Great, you understand, I'm the Christ. So he began to teach them that the Son of Man must. So let's pause on Son of Man for a second because he is uh, he's taking on a title, he's talking about himself with Son of Man, and this may seem like it's a very humble sort of title for Jesus to take on because if he is God who became a man, God who put on flesh and walked among us, even though he is the very image of God, to call yourself the son of man sounds like you're you're uh, you're humbling yourself, and he's identifying with his earthly father Joseph, right? That's what it sounds like. But in reality, what he's doing is, and it actually plays into the whole paradigm that they're talking about with the word Christ and this whole understanding. When he said "son of man," it had it too had a whole um, backstory and baggage, if you will, and they understood it to mean something very specific because they as students of the Old Testament, would have immediately thought of uh, Daniel. And where it says this, I'll read it. This is where their minds would have gone. Uh, It's Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man, and was presented before him. And to him was given, to the son of man was given, dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. So, again, the disciples would have heard him say, Yeah, I'm the Christ, and I'm the Son of Man. And they would have been like, This is going to be sweet. We are front and center to getting the Romans out of here, and finally we're going to turn this corner. Let's do this thing. So he says, he began to teach them that on one hand, yes, that the Son of Man, that's who I am, that's true, but there's a different side of it as well. He's going to break some paradigms down. So he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things, be rejected by the elders, and the chief priests, and the scribes, that's all the leaders in the, you know, in the whole thing. He must be rejected by them and be killed, and after three days, rise again so jesus by calling himself the son of man is claiming dominion glory kingdom all of that stuff but what he's saying is the way he's going to secure that glory and that dominion and that kingdom has absolutely nothing to do with the paradigm that they believed for hundreds of years that it's going to be a military movement and, and all of that stuff. What he's saying is this kingdom, this glory and this dominion is going to be gained by me being rejected by the leaders of Israel, not by becoming the one that actually sits on a throne. It's going to be gained. It's going to come to fruition by me actually being killed by them. And then it's going to come by me Rising again. And the story is further developed as you go throughout. He's introducing it, but really what he's alluding to is the fact that Jesus lived the life that we were meant to live as people. We failed to do it. It puts us in this place with God, a broken relationship. Everything is shattered, right? He's saying, I lived the life you were meant to live, and then I'm going to die the death that you deserve to die. The way I explain it to my kids to teach them the concept is by telling them that we're in trouble with God. All of us. It's all the same. But Jesus stepped in and said, I'll be in trouble for you. You go sit on the couch, play on the iPad for a couple minutes. I'm going to take care of it, and then I'm going to invite you to follow me, and I am the one. Jesus Jesus says, I'm the one who's going to make you okay with God. So he's introducing the gospel in this, and it has absolutely nothing, basically nothing to do with how their paradigm has been for literally hundreds of um, hundreds of years because they saw it as a military movement. So then there's verse 32. He just drops this, literally to them it would have been like a, like a grenade on their understanding of how it works with God. And verse 32 says, and he said this plainly. He just said it matter-of-factly. Hey, great, you know that I'm the Christ. I'm really glad about that. Now I need to teach you something else that goes along with that. It's not what you think. I'm actually going to bring this whole thing about in this new way. Have you ever been in a place, this is what's happening here, have you ever been in a place where the actions of someone else reflect on you? So you are like hypersensitive to the actions of that other person. So for example, uh, if if you were someone who brought a friend to church today, uh, maybe it's, not, it's someone who doesn't typically go to church or it's a new church or whatever the, the situation might be, If you brought a friend to church in some way, what we do in this building, and especially from this spot up here, you feel like it has a reflection on you. You invited a friend, but what happens in this church reflects on you to a certain degree. That's at least what I've felt in the past. And so it makes you very keenly aware of how the music is. It makes you very aware of what the building is like, and it makes you very aware of the person who stands up here and attempts to preach a message of truth, right? So if you invited a friend to church, what I say up here in a way you feel like represents you, and you're thinking, Bob, if you mess this up, (laughs) ah, and I would say to you, I've got like two pages left. I've got a long ways to go and a lot around to cover, so we'll see how it goes for you, but... Uh, if you've ever been in that place where it's the actions of one person reflect on you, it's like me taking my kids to the grocery store or anywhere in public, my three kids and a baby. Uh, The the second we get out of the car, I feel like, for whatever reason, their actions in this moment, they have some sort of reflection on me as a person, as a dad, as a man, as whatever. Uh, And so as soon as we start walking into that store and chaos starts happening around me, I go crazy, and if you really drill down into what's happening, it's it's almost a sense of shame, if you will, uh, or embarrassment, or something like that. Yesterday, we we went to my uh, my grandma's uh, 79th birthday. She was born in 1939, which is awesome. Uh, And so we get there, and my daughter is sweet, and my two or my uh, younger son Jack is, you know, he's being all great and everything. And my favorite of them all, Wyatt, who's six, steps out of the car, and I realize that I didn't check his wardrobe choice before we came to the grandmother's you know, special birthday party. And he's wearing his camo pants, his dress shoes with no socks, and a white T-shirt that's three sizes too small and filthy. I mean, just look like pizza sauce and all this stuff. And so I'm sitting there thinking, my blessed grandmother, who's 79 years old, and my little, uh, whatever his name is from Linus or whatever, <laughs> represents me walking in. And I was like, uh, not apologetic, but like, oh, buddy. It makes me look like an awful dad. And I'm really sorry, Ruth, for making it seem like uh, you're tied within this family as well. <laughs> uh, either way, there are times in our life where some, the actions of someone else, we feel like they represent us. And the same, same exact thing is happening with Peter himself. It says uh, that Jesus says it plainly and that as this is happening, you have to remember that um, there's a crowd around the disciples around. So then it says in verse 32, so Peter took him aside. Hey, Jesus, can I talk to you? He brings him aside. And then it says, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Peter began to rebuke Jesus. Peter began to rebuke Jesus. That is absolutely crazy. It's the same word rebuke that's used previously when Jesus rebukes demons out of people. Same exact word. Peter was there and witnesses Jesus going up to a person who has a demon and rebu- saying, silence to you, demon, because you know, when they're talking, silence come out of him. And Peter has the courage to say, Jesus, come with me. Okay, he's looking at the crowd and then the disciples, and he says the same thing, silence, Jesus. What are you talking about? This is, has nothing to do with what the Christ is or the Son of Man is. He has the courage to say that to Jesus. It's the same word that Jake used in his sermon last week when Jesus is in the boat, the storm's happening, if you remember, and Jesus rebukes the storm. He stands up and says, silence to the storm and the waves, and there's a great still. Peter was there. And Peter has the courage to say, Jesus, and he uses the same exact phrase, silence, Jesus. What are you talking about? Because this sort of thinking that it wasn't going to be like this, this military thing, this whole other kind of movement was totally incompatible with Jewish hopes and convictions. It, it just was incompatible with what they were thinking uh, was going to happen. So Peter has the courage to literally attempt to silence uh jesus so a few observations um or a couple based on that one and this isn't going to be on the board this this is just crazy to me did was mark an original disciple was mark an original disciple no. no not one of the original 12 jake talked about this last week too he was not there who is mark's source for all of this stuff peter and yet peter was like there's a story that you got to get in there mark there's this one time where I, uh, yeah, I rebuked Jesus. He didn't change the word, apparently, to be like, well, I talked to him. I pulled him aside, and we had a little chat. He, Peter actually, as the source for Mark, actually makes sure this is in the book of Mark, which for me builds a tremendous amount of confidence in the scriptures for me, because they ain't trying to hide nothing. They're standing there looking, sort of saying, look, world. We're a bunch of fools, that's 12 disciples. We got nothing to gain by saying this stuff except for to put your eyes on Jesus, who is amazing. So, for one, the fact that it's in there uh, builds my confidence in the scriptures. But the, the next observation about just what is happening is following Jesus will make you, it will make me feel uncomfortable. It's just reality. If you follow Jesus and he doesn't sometimes make you feel uncomfortable because the truth that he is pressing into your life and the, what he's saying is true, it, it doesn't jive with you know, culture and stuff around you. If you walk with Jesus and it doesn't make you feel uncomfortable sometimes, you're probably following a Jesus that you've made up in your head. Let's just be honest. Because what he has to say doesn't align with any culture that's around here not ours today, not theirs. You would have thought it would have aligned with theirs. They were Jews like just like him, but it didn't. It freaked them out and it made Peter rebuke him. Following Jesus will make you feel uncomfortable. And what he's doing is it's not like some big negative thing. It's just he's looking at you in your comfort zone and he's saying that's not where you get to live because your comfort zone isn't where truth is. It's not where life is found. I'm gonna kick your butt out of your comfort zone so that you'll follow me and I will take you to where real life is found. That's what he's claiming. The second observation is you and me, all of us, we're gonna be tempted to fix Jesus's incompatible parts. There are going to be things in the scriptures, not necessarily spoken by Jesus himself, but in the New Testament, in the Old Testament, where you are going to be very, very tempted to say, Jesus, I want to follow because he's cool. But this whole other thing that it's teaching here, I'm out. Like, I don't think that. And it's going to be your temptation to try to fix it, to try to, uh, to just silence it and things. And you've, you've got to realize that temptation is there um, because this whole story, if it's saying anything, it's saying you've got to question your paradigm before you question what's, what Jesus is saying. Uh, your paradigm does not trump, even if it's, been, if it's been years in the making, it does not trump what Jesus is trying to teach you or where he's trying to lead you. Sorry, it's just the way it is. You're going to feel uncomfortable. You're going to want to fix it. You don't get to. It's just the reality. You're the disciple. He is the Lord. He is the Son of Man. He is the Christ. And we're the humans, right? We're the people. We're the people who follow. It's just reality. Uh, I think it was, if I was reading right, it was uh, Thomas Jefferson who, way back when, whenever, took the New Testament, and he removed all the parts that he thought shouldn't be there. Like, ah, this doesn't fit, whatever. And he whittled down the New Testament until he built what he thought was the perfect moral code from the New Testament, void of all of Jesus's miracles, void of all the things that would be like otherworldly. It was just a human to human, uh, sort of message. And in a way that is what culture pushes us towards. It's trying to get us there. Like, fine, you can follow Jesus, be quiet about it. As long as you still align with us on the core things, on the core tenets of what society of the American dream and, and all that stuff. And again, This is saying, no, you don't don't get to do that, even if it makes you feel uncomfortable, even if you're tempted to fix it. So keep going. Verse 33. So he's over here getting rebuked, silenced by Peter, and it says he turns, Jesus does, and sees his disciples. So they're standing wherever they're standing. Peter just got done doing his thing, and he looks and he sees the disciples, the other 11, the people who have been following him. And I, w- I just wish I knew what their faces looked like when they see Peter calming Jesus like Jesus calmed the storm uh, and talking to the Lord in that way. I got to imagine that it was a, just an amazingly wonderful, awkward moment for all of them as Jesus turns. But what, he re- what it seems like Jesus does is he turns and sees his disciples and he realizes what Peter's doing right here will have a lasting impact on the disciples if I don't make it very clear what needs to happen here. Because what happens as you and I interact with Jesus, same with Peter, is it teaches everyone around us what it's like to follow Jesus. What we do matters because it teaches everybody around us what it's like to follow Jesus. So he looks at his disciples, and then he rebukes Peter, same word, he calms the storm again. He rebukes, the same word as rebuking the, the demon in Peter, and says, get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Now, Jesus, I don't know what you're understanding. Maybe you don't know him all that well. Jesus isn't like Mr. Rogers. Okay, so if that's your understanding of him, like he's just kind of super mellow, and he hugs lambs and pets babies, and, or hugs babies <laughs> and pets lambs. If they he got that picture of Jesus, there's a lot of stories that would say, that you don't know Jesus or who he is. Peter's like his main guy, his main follower, and he looks him in the eye in front of his disciples, and you got to remember, there's a crowd around, and he says, get behind me, Satan, which, can we all agree, carries some meaning to it, uh, to, to jump over that void, rather than calling him something else and just jumping straight to Satan, that's a big, uh, that's a big jump, so he calls Peter Satan, tells him to get behind me. You are not the one leading this thing. You fall in line is basically what he's saying. And he's saying, he's not literally saying that Peter is Satan. What he's saying is when you talk like that, when you say that, oh, that you, you know, that's not who the Christ is, you are putting yourself in line with the way Satan operates. Satan, by all means, doesn't want Jesus to take on that sort of kingdom. He would much rather Jesus takes on the king with the armies and the slaughtering and the, the whole huge uh, you know, empire building and stuff like that. So he says, get behind me, Satan, for you don't have your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. He's saying your paradigm right now is man-centered and it's man-made. It's from Satan, who is the father of lies. It's his job to twist the truth, and I ain't having it. You get behind me. Now, so again, observations of what's going on here. First one, tough one, I've been wrestling with this this week, is Jesus does not coddle his disciples. In verse 32, he had just dropped a whole new paradigm on them, but you notice how he'd said it? He said it plainly. He just said it matter-of-factly. He didn't, like, start it with hey guys, yeah, you're right. I'm the Christ. Now come on over here. We're going to take a couple days to really impact this because this is going to blow your world. He didn't uh, do the encouragement sandwich where he encourages them a little bit and then he drops some big truth on them like, yeah, this isn't really what you think. And then he encourages them at the end so they feel good and they walk away, whatever. He just says it. He says, no, I'm going to actually be rejected and I'm going to die and I'm going to rise again. Jesus does not coddle his disciples. If you're in a place where you're off your rocker and you're wrong about him it says here he will call you Satan to your face in front of your friends in front of the crowd I don't know what that looks like for us because we don't walk with Jesus in the the same way that they did but what it's saying is he will rebuke you if you're wrong truth triumphs in, in following him because again it's not because it's some negative thing or whatever in fact the second point of this is he doesn't coddle his disciples because he loves them too much for that. He's not going to let them keep going on a path where they're wrong and they've been deceived by Satan or by by whatever, by culture and all that stuff. He's not going to let them keep walking along that path. It's kind of like same same thing with my kids. Uh, when my kids get out of the van and we're going to head into Safeway, inevitably I, wow, well, this shoot. I got to admit to you now that I drive a Honda Odyssey minivan, <laughs> and it's white. So, uh, when we're about to get out, I hit the two buttons and the doors, you know, of my Batmobile, uh, <laughs> open, and the kids are ready to pile out of this van because we're going to go storm Safeway and take it over, essentially. So, whatever comes out of my mouth is, as the doors are about to open, is turn around. You kids are going to get out of this van, and you're going to stand in front of the van where I can see you. Kunk and the doors open. And I'm watching them like a hawk as I'm getting the three-year-old out and stuff like that. I've had it happen plenty of times where I've had one kid lose their mind and start making a beeline towards the road where death is found, (laughs) no life is found there, and I'm trying to get the three-year-old out. And so I've yelled, like I'm sure most parents in this room have, stop or whatever. Uh, And I, I can just specifically remember,
1: Wyatt, stop!
0: And stops. Thank the Lord, because he never, ever listens first time. Usually it's Wyatt, 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 as I'm walking towards him grabbing his arm. But he stops. It's me rebuking him. It's me calling to him and saying, I'm not coddling him in that moment. I'm saying, you stop. You better stop right now. And it's not because it's something negative. It's because there happens to be a 2,500-pound truck who's coming your way and doesn't see little six-year-olds, probably, or maybe. You know what I mean? I'm not coddling him because I love him too much for that. Hey Wyatt, if you don't mind, stopping, that would be great. Ain't gonna work with Wyatt. (laughs) He would be dead a long time ago, okay? It's the same exact thing, it's the same exact thing with us folks. He doesn't coddle his disciples, doesn't mean he doesn't love you. He's going to call you out, he's gonna call you to the mat because, for that exact reason, because he loves you. We'll keep going in verse uh, 34. So he sees this happening. He calls Peter, Satan. You're not setting your mind. Okay, they 34. And calling the crowd to him, he realizes this is a teachable moment. All right, everyone, bring it in. <laughs> calling the crowd to him, because they've witnessed this too, uh, with his disciples, he said to them, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. Now that phrase, if anyone would come after me, I was reading the commentary because I don't know Greek and all that stuff. I can just read commentaries. And it said that it's, it's actually, if anyone would follow me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. It puts an emphasis on those two things in the middle. If anyone would follow me, deny yourself, take up your cross, and then you actually get to follow me is essentially what it's saying. So, Jesus is standing there with the crowd, and he's basically telling them, rooted in what Peter's reaction, where he's embarrassed. If you really think about it, it even says so in verse 38, for whoever is ashamed. That's the context of what's happening. Peter is embarrassed that Jesus' truth, that his message, that what he's really coming to do doesn't jive with, for him, his culture, for, for his friend the, the, the crowd around him, the people that they needed to be part of the movement So, what Jesus is saying is, if you're going to follow me, you're going to have to deny that whole thing that's happening with what just happened, with what everyone witnessed with Peter. You're going to have to deny your agenda. You're going to have to deny your goals. You're going to have to deny your convictions and your paradigms on what God is supposed to be like. The whole phrase, I've heard people say, "Um, I just can't believe in a God who, fill in the blank. I've heard that plenty of times. I think personally, that that's one of the dumbest phrases I've ever heard in my life. I just can't believe in a God who would whatever. Maybe not the dumbest, but it's up there. Because God is in the heavens. He does what he pleases, is what it says in the Psalms. And as a person, I only see a micro, like a tiny piece of this whole puzzle, right? If Jesus or God is up to something much bigger, and I can't fathom of a God who would do fill in the blank. That means about this much. And my fingers are touching, folks. It means about uh, that much. So when he's saying, you've got to deny yourself, you've got to be, f- if you're going to follow me, you've got to be prepared to put all that stuff aside. Peter's shame, whatever shame you might be feeling, whatever goals and convictions and all that stuff, because mine, Jesus is basically saying, because mine are better. What you've got, whatever you've designed in order to get you through life and help you survive, it's not going to get you where you're trying to go. Mine is better. And then the second part of that, not just deny yourself, take up your cross. So what he's alluding to there is, it's called, at least I've seen it in the commentary, the death march, where if someone's going to be crucified, they don't just end up there and then get crucified. Like you've seen with Jesus, they actually have the cross beam, and it's their shame and their guilt and their everything to carry that cross beam along the death march to where you're going to be crucified. It was a path that was excruciating. It was a path that was sh- f- filled with shame, because if you were on that path, it meant you were condemned. It was a path filled with sorrow, because the people who loved you knew that you were about to be, uh, you're about to be executed and judged and all these things. And what Jesus is saying is, if you want to follow me, you've got to be willing to walk around with a symbol on you, like they do, that says, I'm with him. I'm with Jesus. So if you've got this temptation like, oh, I'm too afraid. The crowd hears Jesus saying a message that doesn't jive with what we believe. He's like, listen, it's a lot bigger than that even. I'm going to go to the cross. If you're not willing to walk with me wherever I go, you've got to fix it. You've got to come in line with where I'm at. If you're going to follow me, you don't get to believe that and follow me. He's bringing them back behind him where, as a follower where they, uh, where they belong. So, uh, let's keep going. Verse 35. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel's will save it. So this is a paradox, right? If you want to gain your life and keep your life, you're actually going to have to lose it. If you want to, or if whoever loses his life for Jesus' sake and the good news is the gospel's sake, they're the ones who will save it. And that brings us to our question for the day. This is how... He is saying, consider this question, because in it you're going to find the answers that you're looking for. For what does it profit a man to gain the entire world? Peter, what does it profit you if the entire crowd is on your side and is following me to the place you thought I was going to go? What does it gain you if, in the end, it means you're going to forfeit your soul? What can a man give in return for his soul? It's kind of like... when you're in junior high, at least this was my experience, when you're in junior high, you spend a lot of energy trying to find life in junior high. Very difficult task. Almost impossible, unless you're like the three cool kids in your grade, right? So in junior high, you're searching for life, and you're trying to find it, and essentially what Jesus is saying, what profits of junior higher to find all the life that they could find in junior high, The answer would be nothing, because a glorious day happens, depending on your school district. You get to, what, eighth grade. I know for me it was, yeah, at the end of eighth grade, and then I became a ninth grader, and I became a high schooler. And I was like, who cares about being a junior high? I'm in high school now. None of that matters. I'm cool. I've made it. But then I was a ninth grader, and the first day of school happened, and I realized I am a ninth grader. And I'm the same person that I was back when I was an eighth grader. And now I'm in high school. So then I went to work and I tried to find life in high school. And I lived in northern Minnesota and then moved to Kirkland, Washington, to Lake Washington High School. And right after I moved here, I was so stressed out that I developed a stress zit on my nose as a junior in high school. So all the life and acceptance I was trying to find in high school, I was not finding in high school. I felt totally, totally, completely alone in high school and felt like, just because one little thing on my nose, I'm going to die a lonely man. (laughs) Until finally, I got through high school and made it to college. I was like, oh, high school's stupid. Who cares if you find life in high school, because now I'm in college. And I did my thing at Northwest University, working after my ministry degree. It took me 10 years. Uh, True story. And I was thinking to myself, Yeah, who cares about high school? Because now I'm in college, and I did my best to find life, not just in college at Northwest, but in an internship and at a church and all this stuff, right? And I had my first, I became a carpenter, all this stuff. And then I got through that season of life and was like moving on to my first actual job. I was at Overlake and realized, oh, college. I didn't really find life there. That's okay. That's stupid. (laughs) Now I got a job. And that's happened over and over and over I have owned my dream truck, and I've already sold it. There was no life found in it. I have joined the National Guard, because I thought I would find camaraderie and life and stuff like that. I haven't quit it, because you can't. You're under contract. <laughs> I, have found, I have found zero life in that. I don't enjoy it. I do it it's called service for a reason, right? I, have, I wanted so badly to be a police officer, I got hired with King County. I went to the academy. I was in a car for four months, and I quit because I was terrible at it because I'm too nice, and I had pastoral experience, and I was trying to fix people. And they were like, what are you doing? You're supposed to put people in handcuffs. And I was like, I'm really bad at this. And so I quit because there was no life in it for me. I wanted to be Batman. I did. I became Batman. (laughs) I became a cop, and there was no life found in it. And so it happens to all of us over and over and over again. And what Jesus is saying is, if you want to find your life, you're not going to find it in all that stuff. You've got to lose it for His sake in following Him, where He wants to take you. That's when you're actually going to find your life. When you let go of it, when you lay it down, that's where uh, that's where life is found. So, what does it profit to gain the whole world but forfeit your soul? Just so we're clear, the answer is there is no profit. A lot of cost and no gain, no gain from it. I, uh, I was listening to another pastor talk, and he was using this a similar illustration, but it got me thinking. I loved it. Um, he was talking about race dogs and greyhounds, and I, I'm not into it. I have no idea. If you love animals and you hate greyhound racing, me too then. I don't know. I'm just using it as an <laughs> illustration, okay? So there's that. Um, but what he was talking about was uh, those greyhounds are meant to run. Like, there's no question about it. If you see pictures or video, those... They're freaks of nature when those greyhounds run around that track, and they can run 43 miles an hour, according to Wikipedia. <laughs> uh, and since the early 1900s, when they figured out how to make it work, there has been a, uh, a mechanical lure, I guess is what it's called, the thing that, the rabbit, right, that goes around. It's a, uh, started off as a real rabbit, actually, and now that's illegal. I read that on Wikipedia, too. Uh, so now it's just a steel cage with you know, fur on it or whatever they do. Um, so these dogs are like meant to run, and they run 43 miles an hour in order to catch um, this rabbit that goes around and around and around. I'm sure their masters or their owners optimize everything in their life their diet, their sleep, their friendships, their everything in order to optimize how fast they can run and catching that stupid bunny, right? Um, and that's the dog's life. you got to imagine that the dogs race, what, maybe once a week? I have no idea. And they get done with the week, and they're like, ah, oh, they're in the locker room. Ugh, that stupid rabbit. And they've, they've gone years of their life, and no one, none of them, have ever caught it. It's like the most demoralizing job in the world. <laughs> they can never even get close to this stupid thing, and all they get probably is like this lame food, and it's probably salad and stuff, because they're race dogs. <laughs> so they live this life of chasing after this rabbit, over and over and over again and in the end, what's true, uh, if they catch the rabbit, you have gotta, ah, I heard this guy talking about how he once witnessed uh, a dog, there's a malfunction with the lure and it's it's slowed down or whatever and so the lead dog caught it. So he's been working his whole life for this moment and it's slowing down and he finally catches it and it comes to a stop and he said, he, he witnessed this happen, the dog like gnawed on it for like a split second And then he stopped and he backed up and he sat down, the dog did, and just looked at it. I have no idea what happened with the other dogs. They probably kept running. I have no idea. But this dog was dumbfounded because he'd been working his entire life to catch this thing. And he just realized it's not a rabbit. It's a steel cage with an old, dirty, crusty sweatshirt around it or something like that. And they, they, uh, I read about it, too, and they said that if, if it ever happens, it's very rare. If a dog actually catches whatever it's going after and realizes it's a fraud, it will never race again. It won't do it. Here's, here's the brilliance in the statement, right? So, like, we can't miss the punchline in this thing. The dog is chasing a fraud for years until it retires. You got to realize that we're doing the same exact thing. You gotta understand that we're optimizing our life to catch these goals, these things that we feel like are gonna give us life. And we're getting back to the locker room and we're like, oh, I gotta keep working harder and I gotta, you know, go back to the grind, and we listen to podcasts and make ourselves better and more efficient, we're gonna get it, you know, and all this stuff. And in the end, we're chasing something that if you catch it, you're gonna gnaw on it for a second, and then you're gonna back up and you're gonna sit down and realize. There's no life found here. It's not going to fill me. It's not going to do it. It might for a while. It might be longer than a split second. It's not going to do it. It promised. I promise you that. So this whole story, what it's talking about, it starts with Peter. Just a small story about Peter being ashamed that Jesus is changing the whole story of what they thought was going to happen. And he moves it and he goes underneath the surface and he says, listen, if you're going to follow me, you're gonna have to deny yourself and your goals, your agenda, and you're gonna have to be willing to put yourself on basically public display. It's gonna take some great, great courage in order to follow me. But if you do, I will lead you to life, real life. I'm basically saying I'm the only one you can trust your soul with. If you try to give it to all this other stuff, it's gonna disappoint you over and over again for the rest of your life. It's so what he's basically saying, it's not some big, like, it's not a negative thing at all. He's, a, he's saying, if you come after me, I am the son of man. I am that one who's coming on the clouds. If you come after me and you're willing to deny yourself to do all that stuff, what you get may not be things. What you get may not be, like, uh, you might not be popular with your neighbors or your friends or your coworkers and all that stuff. What you get is him. You get the son of man. You get the Christ when you cling to Jesus and follow him he's he's the prize there's nothing beyond him it's he's the one that you get and that is that's where life is found if you if you get in that place and then come what may it doesn't matter what happens to your finances or what happens to your health you've got Jesus it's going to be sad it's going to hurt don't get me wrong i'm not going to minimize any of that but you've got Jesus he's the one like that that life is all about and when you get him everything else just tends to pale in comparison. So he says in verse 37, for what can man give in return for his soul? It's kind of another way of asking the same question. What does it profit? Nothing. Well, what can a man give in return for his soul? There is literally nothing for us to give in return for our soul except for us to stand before God and say the only thing that fixes our relationship and restores it so that I can... really have and and have my hold and grip on Jesus and have life from where it's found is what Jesus has done. The only thing I get to trade for my soul is to plead the work and the blood of Christ, what he did when he, like he said at the beginning, when he was rejected and died and came back again. That is your only hope. It's your only plea. If you're standing before God tonight because something happens to you and he says, not that he would, but if he says, why should I let you in? You stand there and you say, There is no reason why you should let me in. There's no reason in myself that you should let me be a a friend of God or anything like that except for the blood of Jesus. I plead the blood of Jesus. I plead that what Jesus did on that cross, he did it in my place, and so I cling to that alone. When you see me, God, please see the work of Jesus because that is our only hope. That is the good news. That is everything this is trying to communicate is God came down and he took our place and we cling to him and God says, yes, Jesus filled the entire, he, he did it all. He, he accomplished everything that's needed for us to have a restored and right relationship. And then you start following Jesus from that point of he, he cleanses you and makes you all right and you follow him for the rest of your life. That's, that's what the Christian life is. So what can a man give in return for his soul? The answer is it's Jesus himself. Verse 38, for whoever is ashamed of me, so wow, this whole thing sparked with Peter, and of my words In this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed. Here's Daniel 7 again. When he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. So I'll end with this. As you walk from this place, I hope that you would consider following Jesus. And if you've been walking in a place where you're just afraid of what his words are, his messages, you're afraid to open your mouth, you're afraid to be kind of ostracized from the crowd... I pray that you would begin, and this would begin a journey, it's going to take a while, but you'd begin a journey of new courage to where you would deny yourself, take up your cross and follow him, and come what may. Worst case scenario, right? What, what, what's the worst thing that could happen? Nothing compared to you walking for years and years and years and find out you're just following a Jesus that you made up in your head to make it easier. That's the tragedy that may happen if we miss this. So I pray that that would happen. Um, with that, let me, let's bow our heads and let's, let's pray.